Have you ever been given the responsibility to bring order out of disorder? If you're a parent, that's your responsibility every day, isn't it? You walk into your children's bedrooms and you know that disorder is there and you've got to bring order. You've got to get your kids back on mission and you've got to give them a vision of what a respectable person's bedroom looks like. (laughs) We've all been given this task a time or two in our lives. The first time I was really given this task in in a meaningful way was a few years ago. I was hired as a program director for a, a group home company. And so my job was to oversee five of these homes and to set up house managers in each one who would fulfill the vision of the company, which would be to help every individual live life to the fullest and to align their practices to government policy. And so these homes, these five group homes had been failing to pass the inspections and they had been failing to make the case managers happy of the individuals who were in the home. And so I was tasked to set in order these homes so that it would meet the vision of the company and it it would serve the clients well. Well, this on a small scale is something of the task that Paul gave to Titus as he sent him to the island of Crete. So if you turn to the book of Titus, we're picking up where we left off last week, where Paul had proclaimed this vision for gospel ministry to Titus, a vision that he wanted to see come to fruition in the churches on the island of Crete. But the vision was not being fulfilled. It wasn't being realized. So Titus, this apostolic delegate was needed. So in Titus 1.5, Paul begins the body of this letter by writing to Titus and saying, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. So there's a mess. There are obstacles to the realization of this vision for gospel ministry. And Titus had the responsibility to set right what was left undone so that these churches would be back on mission for God. Now, depending on the translation of the Bible that you're reading, that phrase that's rendered in the Christian standard Bible to set right what was left undone might otherwise be rendered so that you might put what remained into order. So as we try to envision what's going on in these churches on Crete, we have to kind of imagine it a little bit. We have to use our imaginations. So on the one hand, Titus might be entering into a situation where Paul or another apostle or someone else had come through Crete and established churches, but had moved on to other missionary endeavors before these churches had reached maturity. And we see this sometimes even here in the United States, or as we hear from missionaries, where missionaries will will proclaim the gospel. Some will come to faith. And as soon as there are a few believers who are gathering together, worshiping the Lord, the missionary moves on without providing a lot of further instruction. And so the, then the mission for the next person would be to set right what was left undone. The discipleship work, the establishment of church structure and all the rest needed to happen so that this church could remain viable and remain on gospel mission. On the other hand, 
the situation might be one where there were churches that had been established, they had grown to some level of maturity, but then they had gotten off of gospel mission and they had started to, to leave the vision for the church that had been initially there. And now they're sort of decrepit, dying dilapidated churches. So churches that are on their way to the tomb. And in this case, Paul might be saying there were churches here. They've been on a bad track, but there's something there. Something remains. And so your job is to set right what remains. So whatever the situation is, whether it's a situation where churches have been started and they just haven't been grown to maturity or if the situation is churches that have grown to maturity and now have sort of left the vision for the church that's in the New Testament teaching of the apostles, Titus has a large task in front of him. He has the task of turning churches around, pushing them further into maturity, establishing structure, and setting them on a mission to fulfill this vision that Paul has described. Now, if you can imagine, this isn't an easy task for Titus. This outsider who's showing up, going church by church with this authorization from an apostle, but facing the individuals who have practiced their church life in a certain way for a, for a long time, it seems, at least a decade or so. Titus, this newcomer and likely a young man, is supposed to set them right, to set in order what remains. So if you look at this from Titus's angle, this could be really depressing. This could seem just simply undoable. How is he supposed to do this? Well, Paul gives him an initial step that will make this mission possible and will set the churches up for future viability. In verse five, again, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. So this mission that Titus is on is not one that he is supposed to take on by himself. He's supposed to bring others into the mission and others who would stay at those churches and provide the structure and leadership and stability that that church would need to remain on gospel ministry vision fulfillment. If we think of the Old Testament, we might liken this to what Moses was instructed to do by his father-in-law. Find 70 men who are going to be able to help you do this because you can't accomplish this on your own. So perhaps this is something of a prototype that is observed in the Old Testament. But as we get to the New Testament and read in the book of Acts, we understand that the apostles were regularly handing off their ministry to elders. So when you start reading the beginning of Acts, you always see the apostles acting. And then as you get into the middle of Acts, it's the apostles and the elders. And then towards the ends of Acts, it's just the elders who are acting. And so this church is in a setting that fits that last section of Acts. Churches have been established. Apostles are moving on. Now elders need to remain there to continue this mission and ministry. Now, as we've pointed out multiple times, as we've been reworking our own church polity, elders is a term that's used throughout the New Testament in, is a synonymous term with overseers and pastors. 
Okay, so even in this text, in the qualifications we'll read, the term elder and the term overseer are used almost synonymously. Now we understand that synonyms, though they're super related and often refer to the same thing, emphasize a different aspect of something, right? So we might use a synonymous term to add variety, but we also use it to emphasize another facet of that reality. So when Paul uses different terms for the same office of the church leader, he might be emphasizing different things. So when the term pastor is used or shepherd, more likely, there might, there might be that emphasis on the office's role in shepherding the people, in defending them from outsiders, in feeding them the word. When the term overseer is used, there might be an emphasis on the management of the church, on, on directing the vision in the mission of the church is the word elder is used. It sort of encompasses both of these as there's this position of stability of making right judgments and giving direction and oversight. But whatever the case may be, whenever we counter the term elder, if you're not used to it, you have to just think an elder is an overseer, is a pastor, is an overseer, is an elder. It's all the same thing. Now, in certain places, in certain times, we might emphasize the, the use of one term over another. So, for instance, I have friends who are part of a church plant in Salt Lake City, surrounded by Mormons, where there are, you know, 18-year-olds walking around with the name tag, Elder So-and-So. And so, at that church, they regularly refer to those who are in the office of an elder as pastors, or shepherds, and they rarely use the term elder because they don't want to confuse those Mormons who may be visiting with them. Okay, so, so there are certain circumstances that might lead us to use one term over another. In America, we most often use the term pastor. Here, though, in our conversation, we most often use the term elder because that's the term that appears most frequently in the New Testament. Whatever the case is, you can call the office whatever you would like, but if you hear overseer, pastor, or elder, know that it's talking about the same thing, okay? The other aspect of this that we've highlighted over and over again in the past couple of years as we've worked through our church polity is that Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders in every town. So to go town by town, city by city, church by church, appointing elders, plural. We believe that the most faithful and biblical and really practically helpful church polity or church structure is one in which there is a plurality of elders. That is, there are multiple pastors who are seeking to lead and shepherd and guide and defend the assembly. Now, as we'll get to later, there are qualifications for these elders. So we want to hasten to say that it's better to find in a church, one pastor who is qualified than multiple pastors who fail to meet the qualifications. So the ultimate good isn't a plurality of elders, it's faithful eldership. And in some churches that will be found in one elder. And so as we look at churches who we are friends with and cooperate with, there are many who have a polity where there is a sole pastor leading the assembly. We 
do not condemn that. We recognize there are situations in which there are no other qualified individuals, but we would also press those sole pastor-led churches to have as a priority raising up additional pastors who are qualified. That's the mission given to Titus. Now, as we will read more about the situation in Crete, we'll understand that there probably weren't a ton of qualified men. And so when Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders city by city and town by town, that is not an instruction to simply walk into the assembly and just pick a few guys to do this. It's an instruction that includes with it a responsibility for ongoing discipleship, for training and teaching and raising up these individuals in such a way that they can be called qualified elders. So Paul instructs Titus, go town by town to set right what's left undone. And the way that you're going to do that is by implementing church structure with leaders, elders, pastors who are qualified men who are going to oversee these churches because Titus isn't going to remain in any of these churches. He's going to move on. So as he moves, he sets them up to carry on this vision for gospel ministry beyond his own ministry. And the apostolic authorized way of doing this, the the way that's been endorsed by the apostles to do this is through establishing a church structure that includes a plurality of elders. Now, we have sought to do this as an assembly. That's why we've spent two years, sometimes painstakingly, looking through documents and teaching on this text and others and rewriting and a few Sundays ago, voting on a new church polity that follows this New Testament pattern of a plurality of elders. I know for some that this has been a challenge but know that it is not a personal agenda that's driven this forward, but it's this picture that we see in the New Testament and that we see here in Titus and that we read about when when Steve read from 1 Timothy 3. And I believe that as we grow into what we've now put on paper, we ought to be praying that God will raise up additional elders for this assembly. I'm grateful that I am not the only pastor here. I'm grateful for Josh, but we believe that despite the ways that God uses even the the smallest of people to work on his behalf, he's put a structure in place that gives room for adding additional elders to our number. And so we want to pray that God will do this. Now, very practically speaking, we have a category for paid pastors and non-paid pastors for compensated elders and non-compensated elders. And the reality is that a church can't always pay every pastor. And the reality is that not every qualified man desires to give up his regular job to become a vocational minister of the gospel. And so we have a category in which men who are qualified as elders can be raised up to that office without coming into the employment of the church. This is a good thing. 
Now, churches need to work hard to figure out how they can show honor to those elders in a way that helps them as they're giving of their extra time to the service of a church beyond what a normal member would. But the case here is that we have categories for paid and non-paid pastors. And I think that we as a church ought to be praying that God would raise up men and draw men to this assembly who could serve in that category of non-compensated elders. This, of course, requires discipling of men, focus on leadership development, development and training. And this is in part why we are seeking to establish that pastoral residency program to raise up men who would be qualified and capable to serve in that role. And we recognize that those who would come through that internship program may not be stick around here and be an elder in this assembly, or it may turn out that they learn and we come to understand that they should not be an elder. It also may turn out that God would use this church to send out individuals to other churches where elders would be raised to serve faithfully. But whatever the case might be, I'm urging you as members of this church to join Josh and I in praying that God would raise up faithful, qualified individuals who could serve alongside of us as elders. Now, Paul does not elaborate here on how those elders function in every way, but we get the sense that every elder shares equally in the eyes of God responsibility for the church they are shepherding. And so when we raise up elders, they are genuine pastors. They're not hobbyists who just show up to a meeting as something of an advisory council and then move on with no real say in what happens and no real shepherding authority or responsibility they would be equal pastors with us. Of course, as they have other responsibilities, they would not carry the same weight of tasks day in and day out, but they would carry the shepherding responsibility and pastoral authority that is incumbent in the office of an elder. But not just any individual will do as Paul makes a point to say here, is the majority of his instructions about elders come with respect to their character and their qualifications. Now, as we start looking at this, I want you to know a couple of things as we go along. Never in this qualification list or in the parallel list that Steve read from 1 Timothy 3, do we find a qualification that an elder must be a beautiful looking, dynamic speaking, charismatic personality kind of a guy. While in our secular workplaces, as we're looking for a CEO, we might be looking for something like that. Well, in the church, we're less concerned about the world's value system in measuring someone's worth than we are in God's value system. And his value system points to the acceptance of the gospel, the union in Christ, and the outworking of the fruit of the spirit in an individual's life. So as we talk about the qualifications of an elder, know that what qualifies a man for eldership is not his personality, but his giftedness in the spirit, in the working of God in his life. But then secondly, as we read these qualifications, recognize that these are, are really obligations that are incumbent on every believer. 
And so this list is not the list of the, you know, the ubermensch, the super strong men. It's a list of, of the fruit of the spirit that ought to be increasingly evident in every believer's life. So just because this list here is being talked about with respect to elders, it does not mean that the rest of the church is exempt from growing in these areas. So in one way, it's, you can maybe envision it as going to the pool. Anyone who's going to jump in the pool needs to be able to swim, okay? You shouldn't be jumping into the deep end if you can't swim. But if you're going to be a lifeguard, you've got to be a mature swimmer. You've got to have some wisdom and discernment, and you've got to be able to have a consistent stroke, a consistent outworking of your swimming ability. Well, I think that the qualifications for eldership are something like this. Every Christian should have this. But those men who are going to pursue the office of an elder ought to have it a little bit more, more consistently, more evidently, more faithfully. These things ought to be evidenced in their lives. Finally, before we start looking at this, we also have to remember that this is not an exhaustive list. Okay, this is a situational letter. There are probably issues that are confronting churches, both when Paul's writing to Timothy and Titus, where Paul's emphasizing certain things. But the, the list here is an example list. It's not an exhaustive list. And so there might be things that we come across that Paul doesn't mention, but that need to be considered as qualifications for an elder especially as we think about contemporary vices that might be present in an individual's life. But let's begin looking at this list. Paul has two sections of a man's life. Both ought to be described as blameless. So in one category, it's the man's life in the home. He ought to be described as blameless there. But then the other category is his life everywhere else which transports into the home, he ought to be blameless there. So the overarching qualification is the man ought to be blameless. But Paul fills in the lines here, starting in verse six. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife. More literally, a one woman man. That is, this individual who will be an elder ought to be living in sexual faithfulness and fidelity. If he is married, he ought to live in faithfulness and fidelity to his wife. If he is unmarried, he ought to conduct himself in sexual purity. I don't think that we ought to read this qualification, a one woman man, and say that an elder must be married. I don't think that's what Paul is driving at. He's driving at the quality of blamelessness with respect to the man's life in the home and sexual life. If he's married, that's faithfulness to a woman, his wife. If he's unmarried, it's free from sexual sin. And really for both, it's free from sexual sin. Because a married man is just as prone to the vices of this world in the, the means in which sexual immorality is offered as is a single individual. So when Paul says he ought to be a one-woman man, the husband of one wife, I think we should hear there, he ought to be sexually pure and faithful in living in fidelity to his wife if he's married. 
we often ask then, does this automatically disqualify any man who has been divorced in his life? I think that's a good question to ask, but I think that we also have to read it in terms of what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about sexual purity, blamelessness with respect to his home life. And that means that there are probably situations in which there is a man who has been divorced, who later on in life, through the transforming power of the gospel and the forgiveness of sin, where he would be qualified to serve in this office. So I don't think that we should automatically say that a man who has been divorced is forever disqualified from the office of an elder. And the same is true when we talk about the office of a deacon from 1 Timothy 3. But to do so, I think, would misunderstand what Paul is driving at here. And it would be to communicate that there is one sin that forever taints a man's life and that cannot be forgiven by the blood of Christ. That's not what we believe about the sin of divorce. That's not what we believe about sin, period. And so in the same way that we could conceive of a man who had sinned sexually in some way, but been growing by God's grace, has confessed and repented and turned from that sin and has matured in this area, how we can envision that that man could be qualified as an elder someday. So too do I think we ought to extend that understanding to someone who's walked through divorce. This takes wisdom, discernment, conversation, and it's a reminder that appointing someone to the office of an elder shouldn't happen hastily. It should happen thoughtfully, prayerfully, and carefully. But we don't immediately rule that out. And I imagine that as a church, we will face this someday. We live in a society that has not only normalized divorce, but celebrated divorce. And so it is all the more common to encounter individuals who have experienced this. And we want to say, God redeems, he forgives, he grows. And the church is an opportunity to provide discipleship to that kind of individual. They are not forever useless to God. But wherever that individual is, they ought to be described as a one woman man. Paul goes on, continuing to talk about the home life of this individual. Not only must he be the husband of one wife, must be with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Again, we have to probably begin by saying what this does not mean. This does not mean that every one of this man's children have come to faith and live perfect lives. If God made people as robots to be programmed exactly how their parents wanted them, this would work. But that's not the case. Individuals have to receive Christ. Individuals have to follow after him. And so we do not say that because a man's children have not continued and persevered in the faith that he's disqualified. Nor do we say that an individual has to have children to be qualified as an elder or that their children have to live long enough to prove that they can't be accused of wildness or rebellion. We take this 
with a level of discernment. We discern, is this father leading his home in a way that's encouraging faithfulness in the lives of his children? Or is he encouraging wildness and rebellion in the lives of his children, particularly as they're younger? We know that every child, because we believe in the doctrine of total depravity, is going to be wild and rebellious. So we ask, is the father working to curb that wildness and rebellion in the way he raises his children? Is he stepping in and taking responsibility? Or is he sort of laissez-faire, hands-off, whatever about it? That would be concerning and disqualifying. So Paul begins by looking at the home life of this individual. And this is really, really important because if this individual is going to oversee God's household, as Paul goes on to say, he ought to show a level of faithfulness in overseeing his own household. So if this man is flighty when it comes to his relationship to his wife, he'll be flighty when it comes to doctrine and his relationship to the church. If the man is not concerned about the spiritual well-being of his children, he really won't be concerned about the spiritual well-being of the flock, of the household, of God. And so Paul in verse 7 says, as an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. This was felt probably all the more closely in the early church as churches met in individuals' households. And perhaps it would be common for them to meet in the home of one of these elders. So if this elder failed to lead his home well, that would be all the more evident in the, the assembly. So elders must be blameless with respect to their home life, but they also must be blameless as individuals with respect to their character. So Paul goes on to say, in verse seven, as an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. And now he fills in the lines here once again. He must not be arrogant. Okay? He must not be prideful. This position, this office of eldership must not be about him giving him a big head. He must not be defined by pride, nor is he to be hot-tempered. He shouldn't be easily angered, flying off the handle just because someone disagrees with him or he doesn't get his own way. He must not have a short fuse. Nor should he be an excessive drinker. He should not be a drunkard. He should not be given over to drunkenness. He should not have a pattern in his life where he abuses alcohol. He should not have an inordinate affection for alcohol where he is defined by his alcoholism. That is a sin. Instead, he should be defined by his fascination with growing in the spirit of God and being controlled by the spirit. He is not to be a bully. He is not to be pushing people around, using them to get what he wants or squashing them when there are obstacles in his way. Nor is he to be greedy for money. His motivation for serving as an elder must not be dishonest gain. In fact, as we'll continue to read, there are those who are teaching whose motivation is to gain money. So he's supposed to be growing in these ways. These are negative vices that ought not to be in his life. 
But then Paul goes on to contrast these negative vices with positive virtues. And they almost connect one-to-one as you start to look at them. But he's supposed to be hospitable. So instead of being greedy for money, he's supposed to be giving, welcoming others into his life and into that which God has given him. He's to be loving what is good. So not pursuing that was evil, that which is evil, but loving what is good and for the good of others. He's to be sensible. So instead of being hot-headed and reacting based on his emotions, he's supposed to act logically and rationally and think carefully as he leads the assembly. He's to be righteous, holy, and self-controlled. So instead of flying off the handle, instead of living in impurity, and instead of being controlled by alcohol or anything else, he's to be controlled by God's spirit. He's supposed to be disciplined in his life. This list of vice and virtues, like I said, it's just an example list, but it's a convicting list. And it's not something that we should take lightly. We hear story after story of elders who become disqualified for these very things. And we must work as a church to cultivate the virtues in our entire assembly and our elders must model the cultivation of those virtues. The elders should never put themselves in a spot where they're above questioning, where they're above accountability. And this, I think, is one of the reasons why a plurality of elders is so helpful. Because there are elders who hold the office together, who can now call each other out whenever needed, where a congregant or a parishioner might be a little bit nervous to do so. This is why we stress the equality of the elders. They're equally elders. So there's not one elder who holds power over the others who cannot be questioned. And so to pull the curtain back a little bit, Josh and I work on this weekly as we meet weekly and as we seek to confess sin to one another and to seek each other's help as we strive to grow in these virtues. We're not perfect. You'll see that. You've already seen that at times. But pray for us that God's spirit would protect us from from chasing after idols in these vices and that he would cultivate in us by his spirit these virtues so that we can lead this assembly well. But then as the climax to this qualification list, Paul writes that these elders must be those who are holding to the faithful messages taught. They ought to hold to the apostolic message about Jesus in the the sound doctrine of the scriptures. We remember the importance of this because as Paul described in the opening verses that there has to be the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And so if these virtues are to be evidenced in the elders' lives, they have to speak to themselves the truths of the scriptures that lead to godliness. And they must also then be able to turn and speak those truths to the entire assembly. And so really, I believe that all of these virtues and vices hinge on the faithfulness of holding to the messages taught. So where the scriptures are abandoned, 
these vices will begin to creep up, not only in the lives of the elders, but in the entire assembly. So they must hold to the faithful messages taught, not only to preach to themselves, but also as Paul goes on, to be able to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So again, Paul turns back to the task that he's put before Titus to send these churches on gospel mission where they've been derailed by poor, false teaching. And so these elders, not Titus alone, but these elders have to wield a double-edged sword or to use the shepherding imagery, wield the, the shepherd's staff that's sometimes used to comfort and sometimes to correct the sword that cuts with a word of encouragement in a helpful way in the word that cuts out the, the false teaching of those who contradict it. So elders have this twin task of encouraging the saints and refuting those who contradict the word of God. This takes discernment, of course. That's why they must be sensible. It takes elders who know the people in the assembly so that they know when to use the word of comfort and when to use the word of rebuke. But in Titus's situation, this need is urgent because in verse 10, there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. So Paul is telling Titus that on the very front end of these things, there's going to be the need to rebuke and refute. There's empty talk and deception. These false teachers need to be silenced. Why? Because they're ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't. So they're ruining the households. Paul wants to strengthen households by appointing qualified elders. These others are ruining households and their motivation is to get money dishonestly. To get money dishonestly. Paul goes on to say of these rebellious people that one of their very own prophets, when Paul says prophet here, he's not talking biblical prophet. He's talking something like a political pundit or a cultural commentator. One of their political people who was kind of critiquing society said this in verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's not a kind word, is it? But Paul goes on to say, and this testimony is true, all right? So one of their own is saying, our society is awful. We, our society is made up of deceptive people. It's made up of evil beasts, people who are ruled by their own animal passions, lazy gluttons, people who want everything to just consume, but they're too lazy to get it, so they deceive others to get it on their way. So it might be something like if one of us said, Americans deny absolute truth. They, they want personal autonomy and they only care about instant gratification. That's the society you're in. That's the gospel that's preached. And I think they would be right. This testimony is true. And so there's a need in Paul's day here, in our own day, to rebuke them sharply. So because the immoral society is infiltrating the church, 
verse 13, Paul says, for this reason, rebuke them sharply. Not contentiously, not with a spirit of, of evilness or in, in not being a jerk, but clearly with conviction rooted in the word, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. This rebuke is not one where the elders ought to try to dominate individuals, but where they ought to try to restore individuals so that they'll be restored to sound teaching. And what does that teaching do? It results in godliness. So rebuke them so they may be sound in the faith. And so that on the other side of that coin, so that they may not pay attention to Jewish myths in the commands of people who reject the truth. So they need to be stabilized by sound teaching and they need to be pulled out of this false teaching. What those Jewish myths were, we don't know. What these commands are, we're not certain, but we understand there were individuals who were teaching something beyond what was written, that, something that was clouding the message of the gospel and keeping individuals from pursuing morality and transformation by the gospel. So then Paul goes on to say, building on this, a, a verse that's maybe been misused more often than properly used. And part of that's because it's a little cryptic. We don't know what the Jewish myths and the commands of people are, but somehow these next verses are related. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and believing, nothing is pure. And so sometimes this verse is used as a, a proof text to say Christians can do whatever they want because to them, everything is pure, okay? So you're, you're only gonna think the worst about it if you're not clean thinking or something like that. But Paul, I, th I think, is trying to get these individuals to say that if you are grounded in sound teaching, being driven to godliness, you as an individual will be transformed into purity such that all that comes out of your life will be pure. When you're being transformed by the gospel, your life will bring with you that transforming power such that there is the purity of the sound teaching wherever we go. But on the other hand, to those who are rooted in these Jewish myths and these commands of people, they are defiled they are left in their sin. They're not being transformed. And really, they're unbelieving. So nothing in their life is pure. It doesn't lead to godliness. It leads to impurity. It doesn't lead to virtue. It leads to vice, such that both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They have no calibration for, for what's true or false, moral or immoral. And the result is that they claim to know God but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They are not fit to lead God's church. They're not fit to lead God's people. In contrast, chapter two, verse one, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. So as we look at the mission that Paul has given to Titus to strengthen churches for gospel ministry, we understand that there has to be the stabilization of the church in qualified, capable elders. And that those elders are then to speak 
that which accords with sound doctrine for the strengthening of the entire assembly. We have a responsibility as a church to raise up those kind of elders. We have a responsibility to follow in their leadership. And we have a responsibility to grow after the lives that they are modeling, being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the next couple of weeks, we'll consider what that looks like for every person in the pew as Paul starts to show what that teaching does for every individual. But as we come to an end this week, we must recognize that we need God's gift of elders to lead our church, and we ought to pray that way. And we too ought to be seeking to be transformed by the sound teaching that we encounter in the assembly so that we will be pure, transformed by the gospel of Christ. So let's pray that God does this, that he adds to our eldership and he transforms all of us according to this sound teaching.